welcome to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists podcast. My name is Julianne Justo, and I'm a clinical associate professor at the University of South Carolina College of Pharmacy. And I practice as an infectious diseases pharmacist at Prisma Health Richland Hospital. Today, we wanna to tackle the highly debated topic of cephalosporin use in patients with labeled penicillin, quote, allergies. This is a bit of a full circle moment for us uh, as our very first Breakpoints podcast episodes back in 2018, or a three-episode mini-series on penicillin allergies. It definitely feels like it's time to get back to this conversation and discuss the next steps in the management of patients with a penicillin allergy. I mean, I can ask 10 ID or stewardship pharmacists what they'd recommend and get 15 impassioned responses, most of which are a riff on, you know, it depends. Fortunately, we have some of the best experts on this topic on the pod today to help us sift through the madness. So first, I'd like to welcome Dr. Kimberly Blumenthal, who is an allergist slash immunologist and population health researcher at the Massachusetts General Hospital, or MDH, um, and she's also an assistant professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School. She's the co-director of the Division of Rheumatology, Allergy, and Immunology's Clinical Epidemiology Program within the MGH Mongan Institute and the Quality and Safety Officer within the MGH Edward P. Lawrence Center for Quality and Safety. Dr. Blumenthal's research helped to define the morbidity, mortality, and healthcare system impact of unverified penicillin allergies, leading the way for penicillin allergy evaluation as a mechanism for healthcare quality improvement and infection prevention. Kim, thanks so much for joining us. Hello, thank you for having me. This is Kim. Fabulous. Next, we have Dr. Megan Jeffries, who is an associate professor at the University of Colorado Skagg School of Pharmacy where she teaches infectious diseases and clinical problem solving. She provides ID clinical support at the University of Colorado Hospital and conducts clinical research on infectious diseases, antibiotic stewardship, antibiotic adverse reactions, and allergies. She just completed her term of service on the SIDP Board of Directors and is excited to reallocate her time to more antibiotic allergy projects. I actually had the pleasure of serving on the board with Megan for a time, and I can confirm her laugh is as infectious in person as it is in stereo. So Megan, thanks for joining us. Can't wait to hear your laugh. Thank you. Uh, it's, it's great to be amongst uh, such giants in the allergy world. All right. And last but certainly not least, we have Dr. Eric Macy. Uh, Eric has spent his career with the Southern California Permanente Medical Group practicing allergy and clinical immunology with Kaiser Permanente in San Diego. He is currently a partner emeritus with the SCPMG and continues to chair the Kaiser Permanente Southern California IRB. And he serves as a senior editor for the Permanente Journal and is currently on the editorial boards of four allergy and immunology journals. His research interests have been in drug hypersensitivity. He's still an active beach volleyball doubles player and mountain biker, but has started to play pickleball in his retirement. So Eric, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you very much, Julie, for inviting me to talk about one of my favorite topics. Wonderful. So let's jump right in. I'm super excited that you guys are, are joining us. And I'll be honest, the original idea that we had for this podcast was inspired directly from this fascinating paper uh, that you authored, Eric, and published in the Journal of Allergy and Clinical Immunology in Practice from November 2021. Um, so listeners, don't worry, we will be sure to include the citation for uh, this publication in our show notes so that you can curl up with it on your own. But here at Breakpoints, we love a good history lesson, um, even better if it helps us reassess what we're doing today. So Eric, 
Would you mind summarizing the story and evidence behind the widespread practice of warning clinicians to avoid cephalosporins in the setting of a penicillin allergy? Um, early in the use of penicillins, uh, there were very high rates of adverse reactions, uh, up to several orders of magnitude higher than we currently see. So this got people very sensitized to the somewhat the catastrophic problems that occurred with uh, penicillin use. Starting in the mid-1960s, concerns were raised that cephalosporin use in patients with a penicillin allergy might be associated with an increased reaction risk. In um, 1969, Robert Petersdorf wrote an editorial in the Journal of the American Medical Association stating that cephalothin and cephaloridide could be safely used in individuals with a penicillin allergy, though this editorial did spark a letter to the editor about a potential cross-reaction risk. By the mid-1970s, skin and serologic testing showed potential immunologic cross-reactivity between penicillins and first-generation cephalosporins. Although clinically significant reactions with therapy were only anecdotally reported, often in small, highly selected case series. In 1976, Robert Morling and Morton Schwartz opined in the New England Journal of Medicine that all cephalosporins probably should be avoided in patients with a past history of anaphylaxis or immediate hypersensitivity to any of the penicillins. They also importantly stated that whether or not these reactions were due to cross-sensitivity is unknown since penicillin allergic patients also have an increased rate of reactivity to immunologically unrelated drugs. Lawrence Pence remarked in 1978 that patients with a history of penicillin allergy appeared to have an increased incidence of reactivity to cephalosporins. He said it was impossible at the time to determine to what extent this finding resulted from immunologic cross-reactivity because penicillin allergic patients also had increased incidence of apparent acute onset hypersensitivity reactions to drugs immunologically unrelated to penicillins. Pets also commented that recent evidence on specific immune responses to cephalosporins indicated perhaps independently acquired hypersensitivity rather than immunologic cross-reactivity in some patients. But because of the comments by Morling, Schwartz, and Pence, and despite the important caveats that they noted, global avoidance of all cephalosporins in the setting of any penicillin allergy became embedded in the culture of medicine with no supporting population-based challenge data. So in summary, what we currently have in much of the country is penicillin allergy, avoid all beta-lactams. And what we really need to be moving towards in this area of personalized medicine is patient last exposed to penicillin on a specific date for a specific condition. Specific symptoms were noted at a certain time after the first dose and lasted for a specified time interval and were treated with whatever they were treated with. And because of this reported antibiotic intolerance, this patient is at increased risk for reporting intolerances after all future antibiotic use. And then there is some, we can fill in a numbers, chance of current tolerance can be confirmed by appropriate testing. So that's sort of where we are now. Wow, I mean, honestly, thank you for going through that history. I remember when I read this history in your piece, it, it really floored me. Um, I had definitely succumbed to the dogma that I had encountered in my training 
Um, and honestly, to that barrage of pop-up alerts that we get in the electronic medical record or EMR, um, I, I, I consider myself fairly adept at reconciling penicillin allergies in the present day. And I feel a little bit better knowing that some of those things you just said at the end in terms of, I feel there's a X percent chance that current tolerance can be confirmed by appropriate testing and so on. That sounds like language that I would utilize in my clinical practice as an ID pharmacist. Uh, but the nuance of this history in particular, and the fact that, you know, we ended up applying what seems like a broad stroke uh, with this warning uh, between the class of cephalosporins and, and penicillins was, I think, pretty interesting and something that um, I know a lot of my trainees wouldn't necessarily be aware of. So with that, Kim, Megan, any thoughts on this history that you'd like to add? Sure. I first realized that uh, the... A lot of those articles were from the great Mort Schwartz, who was actually an infectious disease chief at Mass General, where I've spent my career. So in defense of Mar Mort Schwartz, <laughs> I will just say uh, that he was like the heart and soul of Massachusetts General Hospital infectious disease and medicine, and has done so much good. But this one this one thing I, I'll, give, I'll give for this one. Huh? <laughs> I'll give, I'll give, I can't even believe it's the same. He is, he is like the soul of the, the medical services at my hospital and the great Mort Schwartz, even, and we are all human. We can all, all make mistakes here. Um, but the other thing to mention is that there's this common thing that we all say uh, and that we've all read and we've all heard about 10%. There's 10% cross reactivity between the penicillins and the cephalosporins. And I just, know that when we go digging, it's never 10%. In fact, like those original studies were actually 8%. And so um, the fact that the FDA labels decided to go with this round, even bizarre 10 also perplexes me because it's just a great overestimation of risk altogether that has just, it's, it's not a non-data driven number. Yeah. So I loved reading this. Um, I have, I had read some, several of these articles independently, but never like historically never took the time to map it out so like that was a beautiful read it's great um, right yeah and so it's 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 beautiful it's short and it's like assigned reading for anyone that works with me as Same. like welcome to day one read this article <laughs> um it just so clearly documents like how difficult to interpret primary literature that has a ton of nuance right like even these people that were pretty um, aggressive about the concern about cross-reactivity still caveated all of that with they are also a more immunogenic to all other meds right that are chemically different and so it sort of highlights this like but the audience doesn't want the nuance necessarily they want the easy to digest um, message which is avoid all sets like that was the only take-home message that resonated and so we've got it like I am guilty of the same thing when you want to inspire change and you want to get a bunch of people to stop doing something and start doing something else, you need like easily digestible content. So like I'm guilty of just ANSEF for all as being my slogan, one of my go-to slogans <laughs> for the past several years to try to change surgical prophylaxis guidelines or um, order sets anyways. And so I got I need to keep that in mind, right? That overly simplified messages can result in, in like unintended consequences. Yeah, I think this this is a wonderful case study in that particular lesson. 
Uh, but I got to say, Megan, your catchy slogans are really legendary and they definitely reach far and wide for trainees and clinicians alike. So for better or worse, for better or worse, <laughs> I definitely think that there's power in this whole strategy that we've seen kind of unfold with uh, this history. Uh, but I'm hopeful that we can keep setting the record straight today. So with that in mind, let's kind of get into some of the data here. So what do the current data suggest about the risk of giving cephalosporins to a patient with penicillin allergy? Well, one of the uh, reasons we have warnings in electronic health records is to improve patient safety. And warnings that are widely ignored don't improve patient safety. Uh, cephalosporins have been one of the most commonly prescribed antibiotics for decades in individuals with a history of penicillin allergy. And I know that from extensive review of the data from our health plan. We currently care for more than 4.5 million individuals at Kaiser Permanente in Southern California. And we have comprehensive electronic health records going back to 2007. And this has enabled our group to get data on adverse drug reactions from very large cohorts. At a population level, there does not to appear to be any clinically significant immunologically mediated cross-reactivity between penicillins and cephalosporins, or even between beta-lactams sharing side chains. When you carefully look at what happens in individuals labeled with various beta-lactam, and I'll put in quotes here, allergies, who take other beta-lactams. Skin test studies done on highly selected individuals with high rates of confirmed anaphylaxis have documented cross-reactivity between beta-lactams, but it's, these data have never been confirmed in challenge studies. And when you do skin tests on low-risk individuals, there's a very high rate of false positive skin test results, particularly if you set the threshold for a positive penicillin allergy skin test result too low. Penicillin and cephalosporin-associated anaphylaxis is much rarer than commonly feared. Only about one in a quarter million oral penicillin courses is associated with anaphylaxis compared to about half that for parenteral exposure. So one in 125,000 for parenteral exposures. And if you look at the number of new drug allergies that are confirmed to be anaphylaxis, about one in 1,500 oral and one in 1,000 parenteral penicillin allergy reports are confirmed to be anaphylaxis. To put this into context, we calculated there would be about one new cephalosporin allergy noted for every 135 individuals given a cephalosporin who have a penicillin allergy compared to individuals with no drug allergies. And cephalosporin-associated anaphylaxis is also fairly rare. And in a large cohort, we noted five confirmed cases of cephalosporin anaphylaxis with oral courses out of 901,000 exposures compared to eight parenteral anaphylaxis episodes in 487,000 parenteral courses. We also recently looked at the incidence of new ampicillin, cephalexin, and cefachlor, all beta-lactams that share exact side chain allergy reports and over 1.1 million exposures, including over 100,000 individuals with a currently reported ampicillin, cephalexin, and or cefachlor allergy. We again noted the usual minimally and non-specifically increased incidence of new allergy report amongst individuals with a pre-existing ampicillin select 
cephalexin, cefachlor, or sulfonamide antibiotic allergy compared to the baseline incidence in the population. So we noted again that even unrelated antibiotic intolerances, i.e. to sulfonamides, increase your, race, your rate of having a new reaction reported to a beta-lactam. And there does not appear to be any clinically significant signal for a higher risk because a person has had a reported ampicillin, cephalexin, or cephachlor allergy and is then given ampicillin, cephalexin, or cephachlor as opposed to any other unrelated antibiotic. So in summary, side chains, even though we talk about them a lot, may not really be that clinically important for the vast majority of individuals with reported beta-lactam allergies. Thanks, Eric. Thanks for actually also contributing to so much of the data in this space. I really think it's been uh, wonderful to you know, use Kaiser data for population level cohorts, studies and incidence rates and things that you can't get from most of our health record data. Um, I suppose uh, when I think about the risk, um, we have to first think about the biggest distinction, which is, are we talking about a patient with a penicillin allergy label where 95% of these patients will have that allergy label actually safely disproved if we were to test them? Or are we talking about patients with a confirmed penicillin allergy or patient with high risk signs and symptoms of uh, a reaction, such as a patient who recently had uh, a reaction like angioedema or urticaria or shortness of breath or hypotension or anaphylaxis? So next, the next step is to really think about whether um, there is cross-reactivity from this beta-lactam nucleus, but it doesn't appear like that's a prominent pattern of cross-reactivity. That was what we originally all suspected, but it really appears to be more R1 side chain driven. So it turns out, um, like uh, was recently in the New York Times, actually, uh, that, that physicians might not need organic chemistry. Um, if you're going into drug allergy or you're going into <laughs> pharmacy, maybe organic chemistry is important for some of us. Oh, so, I'm going to tell that to my students. <laughs> <laughs> I never thought I'd be talking about like so much uh, chemical structures and side chains, but we are, we really are. So I do love uh, thinking about levels of evidence and cohort studies are great level of evidence. And, and Dr. Macy just presented a whole lot of awesome cohort studies from Kaiser. Um, the level of evidence of a meta-analysis is slightly higher, although we have to think about when the meta what goes into the meta-analysis to get that secret sauce of, uh, right? So if, um, my mentor always used to tell me garbage in, garbage out, right? So you have to have good studies coming in to really get good, good analyses from a meta-analysis. So we are, we are limited by what we have. But the best meta-analysis out there is one by Dr. Picard. And it considered 19 prospective studies and two retrospective studies. And what this looked at was the cross-reactivity risk to, uh, we can, we'll call it all cross-reactivity risk, to cephalosporins in patients with a proven penicillin allergy. And he showed that the high was actually 16%, which is really high. It's actually higher than that FDA label, right, of 10%. And that was for the aminocephalosporin, so those that shared R1 side chains, cephalexin, cefadroxyl, cefprozil, cephachlor, to a low of 2% for low similarity score cephalosporins. And so 2%, you know, we could argue that's probably, it could be just noise. And those included the cephalosporins, cefazolin, cefpidoxime, ceftriaxone, ceftazidime, and cefepime. 
So caveats here, some of those that Dr. Macy mentioned is that the cross-reactivity in some of the studies that get, went into this meta-analysis was determined by skin testing, not challenge. That's because if somebody has a positive skin test and a history of anaphylaxis, we're not giving them the drug. Um, and then when the patients that were reporting allergy, they largely reported not just general penicillin allergy, but specific allergy to an amino penicillin, such as amoxicillin. So in this meta-analysis, there are a couple other tidbits that come out and that are also in our new drug allergy practice parameters that we'll also refer to um, in the show notes. But Cefazolin has a unique side chain. And so maybe um, Megan's ANSEF for all um, <laughs> has a basis in it because it's a unique side chain. It appears to have very low cross-reactivity. And there's a specific meta-analysis that actually we did together a couple of years ago on cefazolin and penicillin. And then Dr. Romano came out with some interesting data on cefazolin and ceftibutin. It's notable that ceftibutin, which is a third generation oral cephalosporin, has a unique side chain from any penicillin and all currently available cephalosporins. And so it might also make the idea of any cross-reaction risk exceedingly rare. Yeah, I think there's, we're like argument A is like, real world denominator, right? So it makes these rates super low. And then sort of argument B is patient level sort of denominator, which makes these rates a bunch different. For, I think I have, A, I'm a, I have been a believer in side chains for a little bit now. Uh, I went all in, I drank the Kool-Aid um, because it was the first like evidence that felt real. Right, like every other time when you read like cross-reactivity, you get this, the, the old studies that are cited are like review articles or someone's opinion on Saturday, right? So <laughs> like this, this finally- Not felt, on Sunday, don't take the end Sunday. <laughs> Sunday opinions Just Saturday. Are we know that, yeah. Um, but yeah. So like it finally felt real and pathologically or pathophysiologically made sense to me. So um, I was all in and it turned out that that premise or that hypothesis was really an effective teaching tool that resulted in behavior change, right? So like that was a really good, like this hypothesis also resonated with other audiences, not just me. And the, the two key studies that I used, cause you can't present all of this data cause it's like a fire hose for people. This, the two key studies that I use are looking at relative large, well done studies by Romano who's been cited before um, who looked at a history of patients with, with immediate allergy histories to pen, and then another study that looked at delayed. And if you had the same side chain with an immediate history, there was like 40% risk of cross-reactivity with same side chain stuff, 1.5% um, with dissimilar. So again, that noise that Kim was talking to about before, and then 0% cross-reactivity in people with delayed with different side chains or 20% with same side chain. So I've been using those two studies to like, um, to increase comfort and empower people to, to use thefts um, for a while now. But those are my go-to. It's just not that they're just like pretty well done and, and large um, in, in comparison to some of the other allergy studies that we have. Antonio yeah, Romano has done some fabulous work over the years, and he has a unique situation where he's able to uh, get a hold of a, a 
very highly enriched population of people who've had anaphylaxis or serious adverse drug reactions associated with beta-lactams. So some of his cohorts are 40% anaphylaxis. Now these are very, very odd people compared, you know, if you look at an average person, you see maybe one in 1200 who carries a history of penicillin allergy would have had anaphylaxis. So, and when you do things in those populations and then try to extrapolate them to the general population, uh, it's difficult. His, his data is certainly valid. So in a person who has anaphylaxis, I'd be much more concerned about side chain reactivities. Um, but in the vast majority of people you see, um, it's not a big risk. And when you do population-based interventions based on abnormal skewed populations, um, you can get some adverse events, and we'll talk about those in a bit. I agree with that, Eric, and also just the idea that we can't generalize an allergy specialist clinic in Italy to right. the United States non-allergists population, the usual population. So we, we, need, we need our, our data to really inform our practice. Absolutely. Um, Speaking of which, I feel like this is a masterclass in the current data in just this one question that I've asked you. So just to remind our listeners, we will have copious show notes to have the exact citations of these studies that our experts are alluding to from Dr. Romano, Dr. Picard, and others. So if you are interested in kind of having these at the ready for your uh, clinical service needs, uh, please be sure to check that out as well. Also, shout out to Picard's heat map, right? Like that, oh, yeah. sort of, like, that is a beautiful figure in, um, in, I don't know how they made it, but I just, I appreciate a good figure. And like, like that was one for sure. Ooh, I smell a SIDP infographic uh, coming soon. <laughs> you can work with him to make yeah. the next generation one. Um, okay, so we've talked about the first side of this argument. Um, now I'm going to ask the opposite side. So what are the current data behind the clinical impact of avoiding cephalosporins in patients with a penicillin allergy? So some of the most important things that we see are that there are risks of avoiding cephalosporins or beta-lactams when they're the drug of choice. And this occurs essentially uh, throughout the US, we know, in patients who have unconfirmed penicillin allergies. These consequences are often unappreciated, but they can include an increased risk of surgical site infection, increased rates of drug-resistant infections, increased healthcare utilization, and even increased all-cause mortality. And taken together, these morbidities are way higher for the populations than this risk of allergy anaphylaxis. Um, I'd love to review a couple of those studies just because I think that they're pretty clear um, and show just the tremendous morbidity. So we perform uh, in the US so many surgeries on a daily, weekly, monthly basis that should have cefazolin as the uh, prophylactic antibiotic of choice to prevent surgical site infections. And so knowing this, I sought out a number of years ago to see if at my hospital only, if you had a penicillin allergy label and you compared them to people without the penicillin allergy label, if there was an increased risk in surgical site infections, 
in those with a penicillin allergy compared to not. And actually we found that there was a 50% increased risk of a surgical site infection. And uh, because I was a Harvard School of Public Health student interested in learning how to do complicated modeling, I actually did an attributable risk. And we looked at if you could change the antibiotic, we did this uh, not in reality, but looking at a retrospective cohort, but we did a mediation analysis. And we were like, if how much of that increased, that 50% increased risk was due to the wrong antibiotic being chosen. And it was actually 100%. So it changed therapy it caused basically this increased risk. And we actually did a, a number needed to uh, evaluate for uh, surgical site infection. And we identified that between 112 and 124 patients with a reported penicillin allergy would need to be evaluated to prevent one surgical site infection. And I will tell you that evaluating that many patients is, is a big lift, but uh, most of them, you know, uh, could be evaluated or could receive cefazolin maybe with very little, just a little bit of a history. And then uh, some of them might need more uh, skin testing and things that Eric and I do all the time. But either way, one surgical site infection is quite costly. And this is probably something that would save our healthcare money and improve care. Uh, we also demonstrated that having a penicillin allergy leads to less effective choices. We looked at specific studies in MSSA bacteremia in inpatient pneumonia and in febrile neutropenia. So just having that penicillin allergy label leads you to not give the most effective treatment. And we also looked in this big United Kingdom, UK-based population cohort study. I don't have Kaiser data, so I had to go abroad to find a population cohort. Um, and I did, and I used UK data. And I showed that if you have a penicillin allergy label compared to not over a period of six years, uh, there was a 69% increased risk of new MRSA, and there was a 26% uh, increased incidence of new C. diff. And I did that same complicated modeling because it worked the first time. And I found that 55% of the increased MRSA risk and 35% of the increased risk for C. diff was due to those different choices in antibiotics over those interim six years. Uh, we used that same exact cohort. We actually also found there was a 14% increased risk of all-cause mortality over a period of six years when you have a recorded penicillin allergy. So here, this isn't even like the people reporting penicillin allergy 30 years ago. This is just over a period of six years, increased MRSA, increased C. diff, increased all-cause mortality. Thank you, Kim, for going through those data. And I, I particularly appreciate that you're going through and attempting to estimate the magnitude of the risk. Because I think as a practicing clinical pharmacist, so much of what I end up doing, people understand, yeah, we got to balance the benefits and the risks, but you got to get down to the details. You got to start to describe the relative magnitude of the benefits versus the risks. And just that one number of 40% uh, increased risk of mortality that's big for something that is uh, so common across so many of our patients and is a very important consideration to make. So again, thank you for going through all those data. We will have all you of those patients available for our listeners. So if you want to arm yourselves when you're talking to your providers, just like I do, we'll have that there for you. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So Eric, Megan, what are your thoughts on this risk side of things? Uh, in uh, late 2013, we noted that a penicillin allergy history, though often inaccurate, was not a benign finding at hospital admission. We looked at about 50,000 
Kaiser Permanente Southern California members who were hospitalized and age, uh, morbidity, and gender matched them to a two to one and found that subjects with a penicillin allergy history spent significantly more time in the hospital, about on the order of like a half a day more per admission, and had significantly more uh, exposure to antibiotics associated with C. difficile and VRE and found increased rates of C. difficile and roughly the same as Kim found in her studies using the British data. And interestingly, despite having this penicillin allergy history, cephalosporins were still among the most commonly used antibiotic class in these hospitalized patients. Um, uh, but this uh, paper resulted in a choosing wisely recommendation in 2014 to don't overuse non-beta-lactam antibiotics in patients with a history of penicillin allergy without an appropriate evaluation. So my first actual research project about that included a cohort of patients that were or labeled as penallergic was about the consequences. So this was just born out of frustration on clinical practice where I would be working with people that were I would think as Trinam was common, I, I dislike Vank so much, but like- You do, like, you really do. <laughs> it's, it's such an overtly average drug. And so like, th like things that make me angry, right? Often turn into like some sort of clinical, uh, clinical study. So what I wanted to do is look at, so in the place I was in Vegas at the time. And so I didn't have enough patients to like have any sort of power in the study. So I did a phone a friend, right? And I called in all my favors and I had um, Mayo and, and Barnes add data to this group. And all I really wanted is like, to be included, you had to be allergic to a pen, to any sort of beta-lactam. And then we just compared outcomes between receiving a beta-lactam or a non-beta-lactam. And clinical cure was our outcome. And it showed that clinical cure was lower if you got a non-beta-lactam. And our risk for that, the main driver for that we believe is, there was a much lower percentage of active empiric therapy, meaning that the empiric antibiotic didn't have activity against the infecting pathogen on day three, et cetera. So like, that was our conclusion. We're like, this is not like rocket science. This was our suspicion, but now it's real, right? We have data <laughs> to support this. And so I submitted this study to um, like my ID journals, right? That's the area of the world that I grew up in. And they were like old news, we know that empiric therapy matters. And I just got rejected by every like top ID journal. And it wasn't until I discovered that JACI existed, which is like <laughs> fancy allergy journal, like super fancy allergy journal. And I submitted there. I'm like, maybe allergy people will care about this. And they totally did. They're like, this is great. Like, well, I mean, they didn't say that. They said, here's your revision. I'm your right. highest citer of that paper. You should look at it. <laughs> is that so? And it also turns out that changing your title is important. So oh, my title yeah. originally was boring, right? Like, you know, like, and then I changed it to, I broke the cardinal rule of don't put the results or don't like, don't, don't table your, don't label your journal article, something other than like, it is what it is. So what I titled this like consequences of fatal lactam avoidance, right? Like that was the sort of thing. Mm. Anyways, so I don't know if that helped or not. Maybe I'm sure it was just the allergy audience that thought, yeah, this is a good question. ID audience could have given two poops about this <laughs> question at the time. Um, but now it's like tons, right? There's tons of data being published about that. But like also another difficult study to get published that was 
like odd for its maybe odd still, but <laughs> certainly <laughs> odd for its time. Like one of the other one of the pushbacks that you would get on on service would be, I'm not going to use a beta lactam because I'll get sued or I'll be it'll be medical negligence or like are you going to testify at my court case like those you know like that sort type of reaction when you make a recommendation and I thought well I I mean is that true or is that just like some more stuff that just gets like handed down to us that gets repeated um, and so I found a lawyer friend and I said. Well, can you do a systematic review of legal cases? Is this a thing that's done? She's like, not really, but we can do it. <laughs> <laughs> but we can do it here. And so we did, a, that's what we did. We did a systematic review. We looked for um, court cases in which patient had a known pen allergy, got a beta-lactam, and then had an adverse reaction, right? Like had something bad happen to them. And so like, and that everyone was aware Right, not like an undisclosed or secret pen allergy, but like everyone knew what was going on and there was a purposeful choice to use a beta-lactam. And so it turns out, and if, if you make it in front of a judge, um, the judge is more, the judge has not, judge's conclusions have said, there's not enough evidence to say that it's contraindicated. Even though we've got these like FDA warnings, like even there, there was there was not enough evidence to say that anything out here is like medical negligence, for instance, which is like a huge deviation from the norm. Um, so anyways, that was a weird little thing that we also couldn't get published. And then Eric saw it in a presentation, like I had included some cases in a, in a, in a presentation that got recorded. And he reached out and was like, do you have any more of these cases? I'm like, a matter of fact, <laughs> I've got a, a rejected manuscript with all these cases in there. Anyway, so he invited it to um, as an article in 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 uh, allergy asthma. Um, you got to get the journal right. It's the Annals of Allergy, Asthma, and annals. Immunology. That was the uh, Annals. I forgot the uh, Annals. It's our Annals. It's our Annals. Yes. Yeah, your guys' Annals for sure. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it got it, it got in there. It is not wild, uh, widely cited, quite frankly, but it is an interesting little read. Okay, so I'll tell you what, it might not be highly cited, and maybe this is on us as ID pharmacists to do a better job, but I've had so many people like have water cooler conversations with me about that professional liability paper. It's super unique. It's on a ton of our reading list, including mine. So kudos to you. Uh, you may not even kudos know the reach. Well, I was going to get there too, because like I didn't know that story uh, that Eric had helped. I love these stories of, of shadow mentors and, and helpers that help data get out there and change practice. So this particular story like really warms my heart and thank you, Megan, for persevering and thank you, Eric, for um, helping it get out there. So I really, I really love that tidbit. Um, yeah, I, I, that's fantastic. <laughs> a little, even a little bit more history, modern history about allergy that, that we previously didn't know. So, okay, with, We've talked uh, ad nauseum, I think, about this renewed interest in a detailed reevaluation of the benefits and risks of cephalosporin use for these patients. So for better or worse, I think folks are recognizing this has been the dogma for a long time. Um, are we doing the right thing? Uh, personally, for example, I'm debating at this point going back to my clinical informatics folks and reassessing what literally all providers see with the automatic warnings in my EMR. Um, I'll just say, like, for reference, we uh, have a very robust pharmacist-driven penicillin allergy assessment and skin testing service. 
but I'm wondering if there's more that we should be doing and leveraging the, the technology to help us. So I kind of want to shift a little bit and get y'all's opinion. What are the automatic warnings currently in place at your respective institutions for patients with penicillin allergy? Um, and do your institutions have any other workflows or services to help providers optimize antimicrobial selection in patients with pen allergies and really kind of get down to this benefit to risk calculation we're discussing? At um, Kaiser Permanente in Southern California, we removed all the warnings not to use cephalosporins or other beta-lactams in the setting of a reported penicillin allergy in December of 2018. This was a very complex undertaking that took several years to accomplish and was a result of consultation with all the departments in the Southern California Permanente Medical Group. We then compared pre and post outcomes to Kaiser Permanente Northern California, where the warning remained over the next year. Kaiser Permanente Southern California cares for about 4.5 million individuals, a little more than one and a half percent of the U.S. population. And Kaiser Permanente Northern California has about an equivalent patient base. And there was more cephalosporin use in Southern California after the warning was removed and no change in adverse event frequency. And it turns out in Kaiser Permanente Northern California, there was also very high rates of cephalosporin use in individuals who carried a history of penicillin allergy, but it went up uh, significantly, almost 50% in the subsequent year in Southern California. Now, patients with a penicillin allergy in both Southern and Northern California still experience worse outcomes in general than those with no penicillin allergy. So removing the warning in Southern California was unfortunately not associated with significant reduction in the known morbidities associated with an unconfirmed penicillin allergy. So penicillin allergy delabeling is still essential for optimal outcomes. Does that also mean we should move to North Carolina? I mean, sorry, North California rather than South Carolina? Yeah, I was like, no, no, I'll take care of you in South Carolina. You're good. Okay. But I, I like, can't speak to the West Coast. <laughs> well, uh, Kaiser has, is removing all the warnings nationwide now. So that's about 11 million people. That's a lot of people. That's great. Yeah. That's great news. And so bold. Uh, I am in a healthcare system in New England, um, which... The approach is, was largely very different because we use first data bank, which a lot of us use for building and using alerts, and you can modify them. But uh, with the, um, we have a healthcare system called Mass General Brigham, and um, most of, there are lots of lots of allergists. We have more allergists at Mass General Hospital and Brigham Women's Hospital, I think, than most other places. Um, and so we're flush with allergists that would like to be involved somewhat in the process. And so we do uh, consultations at our academic sites. And then we also have community sites where we can't do in-person consultations, but we can do follow-up because they're not very far away. We can do telemedicine consultations. And so we have what are uh, inpatient prescribing pathways or algorithms. And they've been in place for a number of years across all of uh, our inpatient sites, which is nine hospitals. Um, in the uh, New England area. And these guidelines use both the allergy history, what was the history, and what is the desired beta-lactam uh, to sort of match a situation without an allergist for the most part. Um, and it guides use by full dose, like freeing uh, our inpatient prescribers to just 
prescribe the medicine normally. It, uh, when it's safe to do so, it has you, uh, the inpatient prescribers perform what we call testose challenges, which are uh, either oral or intravenous challenges that are performed without the input of the allergist across all of our sites. And then there are situations where we say only with prior penicillin skin testing or call allergy if available. And so we have a lot of built-in electronic health record uh, tools that help accomplish this across our sites. So um, one is a, an initial best practice alert that says you're prescribing clindamycin or a carbapenem or something in this patient. If you're doing it because of a penicillin allergy, please consider these alternatives. And here it gives you a link to an app that, we, that has clinical decision support. It also has a link to a testose order set. So we have a specific testose order set that provides the information that pharmacy needs, that nursing needs to be able to accomplish testose challenges across our whole health system uh, without allergy input really at all it, over the, a number of years. And so we do at our main hospitals, Mass General and Brigham, probably 75 to 100 uh, testose challenges a month. Um, oral or IV, these are all the medicines that are indicated, often uh, desired for use by either the inpatient medicine team or infectious disease consult says this is the right drug for the bug, et cetera. Uh, the stuff you guys know best. Um, and so this comes up much more rarely at our community sites. So that like clinical decision support and those best practice alerts are really necessary if this comes up like once in an inpatient nurse practitioner practice at one of our community sites in like uh, the, uh, the island hospitals, for example, or we have a hospital in New Hampshire. Um, so our algorithms can be found um, uh, in many publications online. Uh, we've published a total of seven papers on our approach since uh, I think 2015. We've shown that it leads to good antibiotic switches. It increases first-line therapy. Um, it increased narrow-spectrum beta-lactam use in the hospital, but not on discharge. So it's important to think about why beta-lactams weren't used on discharge. And it's probably because it's not like a true delabeling approach. Uh, right now, we're working on version three and uh, updating it, um, also integrating it a little bit more even into EPIC. Um, I also mentioned that a couple other hospitals have implemented our approach as well as published on our approach. That includes Mayo, Cornell, and UCSF. Um, a downside of this approach is that it really requires a lot of maintenance. It was maybe a, a fellow project uh, for me, and it's I'm still in charge of it a decade later. Um, so, the forever fellow. Yeah, I'm like, oh my goodness, I still run the beta-lactam allergy approach for these nine hospitals, and I don't know. Um, uh, and so we also, on an annual basis, re-educate all of our trainees at the, at the and we make uh, web-based uh, training available through our, like the, you have to do those infection control modules. We add on a couple allergy questions so that people are familiar with how to do this. Um, and then another downside is really that it requires alert overriding. So we didn't just sort of like take the Eric approach and silence the alert. So if you're not confident in yourself and your read of this algorithm or what the clinical decision support is doing, or you feel alone, at uh, a hospital that doesn't have allergy access, you just might, when that alert pops up, just not go through with it, right? And so I do think that it's really important to silence the alerts that don't matter. And that's definitely our next step and what we're looking for. Yeah, here in Colorado, we are not flush with allergists <laughs> as, a, as a comparative. Um, so 
we have sort of taken like what is possible approach. So like Julie has a pretty robust delabeling service. Uh, obviously, uh, so does Kim in the in in the west in the east. We just don't have the we don't have the bandwidth or the people or the infrastructure to support uh, that. It's just not a priority on anyone's work order. And so we have taken the like what's possible approach, which is increasing staff use, even in the setting of a, of a pen allergy label. So, but we still have the consequences of everyone else, which is like this best practice alert that says, you know, keep in mind this patient's pen allergic, and then you have to do this override of like risk versus benefit, et cetera. So like we still have that, the, the downside, I mean, so we've been able to overcome a ton of like just Clinden fluoroquinolone use by just robust education. So like I go, I go on a tour at least annually to all our different sites and do, <laughs> and do you know, put on a the road show, show dog and pony show, hundred <laughs> percent, put on the road show for uh, all new trainees, right? To academic institutions. So like new people every year and then train ID fellows every year at their boot camp. Um, so anyway, like it's like that has been our approach because that was like, I am available to do that. And that's that's an available intervention that we've got um, versus um, other infrastructure. And then we honestly just like haven't been brave enough to like do the Kaiser approach here. Like just haven't been able to convince, um, I think legal, would be a bit, uh, is certainly a barrier that that we sort of have to overcome here, and we have just a pretty conservative approach in our health system. One additional thing we've done in in San Diego is I've gotten our two hospitals here to start routinely oral challenging low risk individuals in the hospital, independent of any allergy input. So this is a project the hospitals took on with nursing. And so individuals who are in for whatever condition who carry a penicillin allergy and at least 15% of the people hospitalized carry a history of penicillin allergy and about 60% of them will get some antibiotic in the hospital. And if we can delabel those, we get a lot of bang for the buck. And that pays off uh, on, on less overall hospital stays and less problems in the future. I would love that, right? You're in for pancreatitis. Yeah. Yep. Take an oral challenge while you're on gut rest. <laughs> like, like, like that would be that would be great. Um, so just to clarify, uh, Eric, we're talking oral like amoxicillin challenges is what you're uh, discussing. The, the the standard protocol would be a 250 right. milligram amoxicillin challenge with one hour of acute observation and then yep. two to five days of delayed observation or yep. delayed hypersensitivity. Yeah, and and I'll just round it out since we're all talking about our own experiences. I think this is helpful for folks that are looking at what is a huge topic and can get very overwhelmed at trying to change a culture. So very much like Megan, we took a what is possible approach. Uh, we have a very classic EMR warning uh, that alerts using that first data bank um, information that alerts folks to the potential cross reactivity between cephalosporins and, and pen allergy. And literally all the stuff that we've done is uh, kind of the free 99 interventions that stewardship can put in place. So our antibiotic order sets, guidebook, webpage, app, other resources all encourage kind of a two-pronged approach. The first one being detailed penicillin allergy assessment and uh, which allows for delabeling whenever possible. I was crying a little bit when in the midst of the pandemic, we shifted from one electronic medical record to another electronic medical record throughout our whole health system. And we lost 
all of these details on these oh, individual no. patient charts. So I'm still crying a little bit, but I will say <laughs> we're approaching the two-year mark in the new system, and I'm starting to see our pharmacist documentation back in there again. So that's nice. Um, so the first approach is really like delabeling aggressively whenever possible. And, but, you know, as we've mentioned, you have to have very clear algorithms because folks are going to get nervous uh, when you're truly, you know, delabeling someone that it is in fact safe to do so. Then the second piece is careful consideration of cephalosporin use. So like Megan discussed that Road and Pony show of like, if cephalosporin is first line, let's just, let's stay on there for a little bit longer in a penallergic patient and really walk through the benefits to risk to make sure uh, whether or not we want to stay with that as empiric first-line therapy or move away. Uh, so we do have uh, antimicrobial stewardship service that can be consulted to evaluate and assist with cases like this. Although I personally love making little baby stewards throughout the entire hospital that could do this themselves <laughs> too. Um, and we do a lot of that either full dose challenge or test dose challenge. We do a lot of oral amoxicillin challenges. That's been my jam like the last three or four years because it gets me out of doing penicillin skin tests. I don't know about you. If you're an allergy, maybe you love doing skin tests, but <laughs> I'm a pharmacist for a reason. So if I don't have to do a skin test, I, I will take that. Um, but you know, we locally have a shortage of inpatient allergist care and my practice being inpatient. Um, so we have very strict protocol and criteria for when uh, a pharmacist is able to do uh, penicillin allergy skin test. And I'll be honest, the highest risk cases, we really do have to just uh, refer them to an allergist for full allergy assessment and management. So with that, um, I very much thank you guys for going through all of those details. I really love how each of our systems employ various approaches that have been demonstrated to improve the quality of patient care, but they're really customized, right, to our settings and our resources. And I really hope this serves as, if nothing else, an inspiration to listeners I do really believe it's worth taking even a little piece of what you've heard today and trying to implement it um, in your uh, practice. FYI, again, we will be making these public links to our respective resources available in our show notes as well. And we encourage listeners to reach out to any one of us or other authors in the space to ask for materials. I've generally found that most people are very uh, interested in helping to combat inappropriate penicillin allergy labels and they're very giving of their materials. So thank you guys for uh, allowing me to go through with my PSA for delabeling, <laughs> the detailed <laughs> allergy evaluation. Uh, but I wanna move to kind of our big final question, the so what question. In your opinion, are we ready to adopt widespread removal of health system warnings to avoid cephalosporin use in the setting of reported allergies? Uh, if so, any suggestions for how to implement it? And Eric, I'm looking at you here. Um, if not, uh, what other practices would you guys recommend as a starting place to optimize antimicrobial use for these folks? That is such a great question, the burning one. So I suppose I'll start by saying, I don't think we're there yet, but I do commend Dr. Macy and Kaiser for taking such a bold step. Um, we have these major academic centers, but we also have community sites and I've worked really hard in these community sites and to even start prescribing later generation dissimilar cephalosporins in a patient with a remote penicillin allergy was a move in the right direction. So we all have to start where our hospitals are. I think that uh, at the core, 
we're all starting from different places and we all are thinking the same thing. How do we get there? So we should really be following what I think is a great new article that's in press. It's the new drug allergy practice parameter guidelines. This is the joint task force for the practice parameters from the allergists. And the reason why this is important is it's the first update since 2010. And it's in press now in the Journal of Allergy and Clinical Immunology. And Dr. Dave Kahn is the first author. And the reason why I think that we should follow the guidance here is because it's national rubber stamped guidance. So you can silence any alerts that, that say use a full dose or use a test dose or whatever, and know that you have like the best gold standard guidance of allergists behind you. And so then you don't even need to have that little worry that Megan studied about whether we're liable, legally liable. You're really at us poor. The whole healthcare system could follow this guidance. Um, so this parameter clearly indicates that we should be prescribing based on structural similarity and anaphylactic histories. And that's when we uh, want warnings. We want what warnings for structural similarity and anaphylactic histories. I'd go so far as to say that I would want a little bit more than that. I would probably want to know if there were any IgE-mediated kind of symptoms. So if there were non-anaphylactic IgE-mediated symptoms, I would probably want a warning because I want to know and have, have it be a concerted choice to prescribe. Um, I want to know the history. So for example, if we have a patient that has anaphylaxis to ampicillin sulbactam, I would certainly want a warning in my face prior to prescribing cephalexin or cefaclor. I think we might all agree with that. Um, but I would not want to be alerted if I'm prescribing a cephalosporin to a patient with any non-allergic reaction or mild intolerance to penicillin, regardless of if it happened whenever. And I would not want to be alerted if I'm prescribing ceftriaxone in a patient with a remote rash to penicillin as a child. So here, I think my uh, summary is really that the allergy history matters. And so how do we use the allergy history to silence alerts that don't matter? We need to document better. So to build in that nuance between the like sledgehammer of Dr. Macy's approach um, and the like maybe too intricate of my approach, we need to document better in the electronic health record because we need to build off of the reaction and the reaction type or testing to be able to silence alerts that don't matter, to be able to protect patients from potentially bad outcomes either way from allergy or the adverse effects of avoiding beta-lactams. So please look for that, um, the drug allergy practice parameters. And then how to document the allergists also are there for you this year with a new in-press paper that talks, uh, Dr. Macy actually, Eric, you helped with this a lot too. When we were doing uh, how to document in the EHR, there was a work group report from the adverse reaction to drugs, penis, drugs, biologicals and latex committee of the Quad AI, which is our professional organization, has a paper that's a uh, work group report on basically how do we advocate for better documentation and how do we encourage better documentation in the health record? So finally, I think we have to remember that removal um, of alerts for cephalosporin use in penicillin allergy labeling patients does nothing to that penicillin allergy label. It's still persisting, it's still causing trouble. 
So we need to be able to include methods for delabeling after discharge for these patients. We can't lose them because they were in the hospital once and this was relevant. They're gonna be in the hospital again. It'll be irrelevant again. So we either need to think about uh, allergist referral on discharge, maybe an amoxicillin challenge in the you know, waiting room for discharge or something like that. Um, separate delabeling initiatives in our hospitals. Um, so what I do like about our current approach is we have this sort of balance between stewardship principles um, and improved allergy documentation, and it can lead to delabeling, but I think we can all um, agree that we have to sort of do something about the alerts and our documentation as well. We have to make the alerts in the electronic health record easy, intuitive, and make the appropriate option the one most likely to be selected. So prioritize the options when we present drop-down menus. Yeah, 100%. So I think we were working on um, updating the surgical prophylaxis uh, or pre-op order set. So the pre-op order set includes like so many things. And I was working with a surgeon that said like, technology should make our lives better, not worse. And that I have like, that's been living rent free in my brain for <laughs> quite a while now. And I'm like, yeah, like a hundred percent right now, our, our own systems, not like our general, we in the country, but like my own health health systems process is not helpful, right? Like that tech of this, a lot the like this broad alert is not actually helpful. And so, um, that's been my, like, by like opening statements, technology should uh, help improve, not be not be detrimental. So that's been my opening cry for why we need to actually prioritize this epic build change, um, which is a slow process. Mm -hmm. If I had a dollar for every time I thought in my career that I should have gone back and gotten my informatics degree <laughs> or <laughs> some knowledge of coding language, I mean, I'm a millennial here, so I'm probably just, I think I'm just getting old, but I agree wholeheartedly with all of the things that you guys are saying. If we just had people, we do allergy assessments all day long. People come into the clinic, they come into the ED, they come into the hospital, they go see their pharmacist in the community. Like people are asking about allergies all the time. If mm -hmm. you just had the formatting of the documentation, assisting you and you had the fields that you needed to then build these alerts. Cause I think at this point, we've talked about a mountain of data. We know that we could do better than just a blanket approach of either avoid cephalosporins or not. Again, kudos to you, um, Eric, for having the, you know, fortitude to move forward with uh, Kaiser and just removing all things. And I think some folks we were discussing, even in our system, maybe taking that approach with cefazolin as a particular cephalosporin that has unique side chains and is such a high volume user and an important narrow spectrum antibiotic for surgical prophylaxis. But all this to say, um, I, I really encourage listeners, if, if you're interested in this area and you haven't done a lick in the space, but you're trying to start somewhere uh, that would probably give you the best bang for your buck, I really think that those two citations uh, that Kim mentioned both the practice parameter guidelines and also that new paper uh, with Dr. Geyer as the first author about allergy documentation will be great places to start. Um, and and I, page 24 of the of the new guidelines of the of drug allergy <laughs> guidance. You heard and it here first, folks. Page so like, got a text about this last night from a trainee that's in Nashville that was like, 
just got in a fight with my attending. What <laughs> should I send him? I'm like, hot off the press, babe. Page 24. There you show go. Them, there you go. Practice. Yeah. We're making your life easy. <laughs> I love that. Um, but I also think on a broader scale, I'm looking to organizations like SIDP and IDSA to really talk to um, these uh, vendors that provide these electronic medical records, both within the U.S. and outside, to really put priority on, on this particular issue. So with that, I think we've talked about a lot of different things, but we're going to shift to wrapping up with our most fun segment called I Feel Nerdy. I Feel Nerdy is meant to be a safe space for our panelists to nerd out over their favorite ID topics, quirks, and fun facts. So for today's I Feel Nerdy, I want y'all to share your favorite beta-lactam allergy factoid that impacted an individual patient case you were involved in. So Kim, well, I'll turn it to you first. Sure. My favorite beta-lactam allergy factoid is something that impacts a lot of my patients. So it comes from one of our former medicine residents, Melissa Imateo, and her research when she was a fellow at Montefiore, where what they did was they were doing uh, lower risk penicillin allergy challenges with amoxicillin, but they were doing it with a placebo first. Um, and because of their sort of placebo controlled method of doing challenges, they were able to determine that patients labeled with a penicillin allergy receiving a challenge had an 8% reaction rate to placebo. So uh, that's just impressively high. And it makes us think about anything that's less than 8% might be noise, right? In these patients labeled. And that's, by the way, that's the 8% from that penicillin stuff. That, that, that brings back. us back. It's, that it's eight a full just, circle moment. <laughs> we should just remember eight. Um, so I think it relates a lot to, you know, the anxiety and fear that some of the patients that I see have of medications and have of drug allergy. And there's certainly a true, like a uh, physical, emotional, psychological connection that we have to recognize. Uh, a Absolutely. Turkish study even realized that some of these like reactions to placebo, which when it's a noxious response to placebo, we call it nocebo effect. They actually showed that the that you can even have objective signs like flushing and urticaria. So it's all about the mind body. And so I really feel like it speaks to the importance of patient counseling and the patient experience. So I mm -hmm. actually think that in order to be effective in these endeavors, we might need to have really great communication tools. Um, and so uh, this sort of level of counseling might not be available everywhere, like that doesn't have access to infectious disease pharmacists like you or allergists like us. Um, and so we have to be able to think about how we can, you know, spread this in a safe way that's acceptable to this patient population. I couldn't agree with you more. And I think the thing that I love of what you just said is that this quote, nocebo effect, it is real. It's very real to the patient, you know, in the bed or in the clinic room. Um, I feel like I've definitely seen this in my own clinical practice there will be cases that our pharmacy residents who help with this pharmacist-driven uh, skin testing service, they'll do the allergy assessment and they'll come back and debrief with me. And you could just tell that we have an anxious patient on our hand who's at risk for this quote, nocebo effect. So again, I'm talking anecdotal here, but stay with me for a second. Um, in my clinical practice, if we feel like we're dealing with one of those individuals, I definitely tell them, okay, this is one where I actually need to be involved at the bedside. I personally have to have a conversation 
um, as the you know pharmacy quote attending for lack of a better term to discuss it with the patient and make sure that they're comfortable with moving forward with whatever uh, we're attempting to accomplish. Um, and I'll be honest, there are some times where even I have had that conversation and I'm, I'm still not convinced that they're ready. And I actually will go the extra mile and refer them directly to an allergist because I really want that added expertise and wraparound care for these types of patients that benefit from the extra TLC. So um, I love that factoid and great tidbit. Okay, moving it over to Megan, you're up. Hit me with your best nerdy factoid. Well, I went, I had to go for a nerdy factoid. It didn't directly impact patient a patient case, but I think globally, this has impacted patient care. Um, so I, I just, one of the very first articles that did the side chain chart was actually published in 2008 by Daryl DePestel, who was a pharmacist at the University of Michigan at the time. And I, the first time I saw that it was probably 2012. So like not hot off the press, but I had decided like I was teaching ID um, and I needed a source for the approach of like how to manage a penicillin allergy label, like what antibiotics to use in that scenario. And I came across this table and I arguably did not know what I was looking at. Like it took a while <laughs> to digest. Hey, they're pretty yeah, intense. holding it the right way. <laughs> right? Like it spans over. I think it's the pages. one with the three prime and the, right. It has the different yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, side chains by its actual location. Daryl went back the, to yeah. Orgo guys. Yeah. And it's like R1, R2. That's, that's not even 101. Right? Yeah, I know. It was similar, same. And like all of these things. And I was like, where and a and they didn't include cefazolin so like i was like fully <laughs> fully flummoxed for over a year of like trying to figure out what is happening with this table but anyways i i don't think that like this pub gets its like rightful flowers because it's it's we sat on this i i sat on this data of like side chains being important for a long time right like it was out there in the world and in the abstract it said side chains are important it didn't it didn't like identify like r1 is the cause of all evil but like they did a decent job of telling us like what was going on and it took me a long time to like like understand this pathology like and understand what this out al the allergy data right because like that's not something that i was used to either um but anyways so shout out to to a, a, to a Daryl before it's time. Yeah, exactly. I love this factoid because, okay, I'm not exaggerating here at all. I can pull up my little peripheral brain that I have for my learners. My clinical rotation readings still have in the beta-lactam allergy section, Daryl's paper from 2008 as the first one. Now, mind you, Megan, yours is like right there next to it, right? As like the <laughs> modern version that's been iter iteratively updated. Um, but yeah, I definitely will pull that up. Big shout out to Daryl DePestel, a longstanding SIDP member who's been trying to set us all on the right path when it comes to beta-lactam allergies for the last 14 years. So uh, I think you've just confirmed that this is like my favorite segment of the podcast. So moving on, I'm super excited to hear, Eric, what you got for us in terms of your nerdy factoid. Um, when you're looking at... Uh administering antibiotics to people, you have to remember that there's a certain predictable rate of new adverse reactions that will occur with all antibiotic use. Uh, and it's population-based, it's higher in women than in men, 
It's higher if you look 30 days after onset of a course. Sorry, it's higher if you look at one year onset after a course versus 30 days onset after a course. And the rate is highest for sulfonamides, about half the rate of sulfonamides for penicillins and about half the rate for penicillins uh, for cephalosporins, macrolides, quinolones, and clindamycin. And so that's always there. If you take individuals with a history of penicillin allergy, about 2% of them will be confirmed to have a current acute onset hypersensitivity and about another 2% a current delayed onset hypersensitivity with appropriate testing. And in penicillin allergy delabeled individuals, the rate of a new penicillin allergy occurring with a subsequent therapeutic course is about two to fourfold higher than in random individuals. And if you reevaluate these individuals, only about 3% will be confirmed to be currently hypersensitive. Thank you so much for that. I think that's such a real fact to keep in mind because we work so hard and toil away at the instance when we first come into contact with this case to delabel and or decide whether or not to avoid a cephalosporin. But we got to think about what's going to happen with the next encounter with the healthcare system. And it's very there is a great potential that that pesky label can magically come back. Uh, sometimes it's valid, sometimes it's not. So yeah. I know, <laughs> yeah, so I know we call our patient, for example, in South Carolina, we will call our patients' primary care providers, their community pharmacies that they have on record, and we'll also give the patient um, or their caregiver like a business size card documenting the results of their allergy reconciliation or challenge to carry with them. Uh, we actually got that idea from, from Bruce Jones, who is another kind of leader in the um, pharmacy world for a lot of these delabeling efforts. Um, other folks also employ like pop-up alerts to be like, hey, you're putting a beta-lactam allergy back on this person. There's stuff uh, in their chart that exists relating to this. Are you, are you sure that you've looked at this? So I think there's a lot of ways to approach it, but I totally agree that factoid is something to keep in mind. Um, just to be fair, I'll go ahead and give you guys my factoid. This is something that happened within the last year, uh, which was a pretty challenging consult that we actually got on the antimicrobial stewardship service. Um, it, the fact uh, involves, we've talked a lot about penicillin and cross-reactivity with cephalosporins, but I'm also learning about the novel beta-lactam, beta-lactamase inhibitor uh, combination, for example, ceftolazine, tazobactam. Ceftolazine actually shares a similar R1 side chain to common broad spectrum cephalosporins like ceftriaxone and cefepime. Um, and I definitely know like on Twitter and other social media, there's folks like Jeff Pearson and Megan and me, and we're sitting here analyzing the chemical structures of these novel beta-lactams as it relates to existing agents and trying to figure out what we were gonna do uh, when this comes up. And then sure enough, like, boom, it, it hits me in the real world. Uh, it became relevant for a young paraplegic patient who developed right ischial osteomyelitis from extensively drug-resistant pseudomonas. And I was charged with trying to find optimal therapy, but unfortunately he had a recent uh, witnessed anaphylactic reaction to, ceph to ceftriaxone that was documented in our electronic medical record about six months prior. So at that point, we were trying to figure out uh, ceftolazine tazobactam was going to be the therapy of choice for his particular infection, but we were trying to balance the benefits of that as first-line therapy versus the risk 
of potential cross-reactivity with this witness ceftriaxone hypersensitivity reaction. Um, this one was definitely outside of our pharmacist-driven protocol. I uh, brought in our allergist. I was like, no, no, I, I need you to come in for this one. Um, and we actually developed and administered uh, a Toltaz uh, skin testing at the bedside. Uh, the patient did well after prick and intradermal testing. And then we followed that with a, a graded IV challenge of Toltaz. And fortunately, he successfully tolerated all these tests and was able to complete a full course of therapy that was a couple weeks long for, for Toltaz for his infection. Um, I'll be honest, there's many unanswered questions regarding this case. So don't, don't at me, um, on social media, but I appreciated <laughs> being able to use like the hypothesis of sidechain cross reactivity to try to develop a safer care plan for the patient that balanced the, that balanced the benefits and risks and allowed us to have a, a detailed conversation and get informed consent from the patient. So this is an excellent case, and it highlights the point of when you have these challenging cases test and verify that, in fact, there is, there is hypersensitivity. Um, I'm often asked how many times I've had to desensitize people. In about 35 years of practice, I can recall perhaps two episodes almost all the time I get someone with a history of anaphylaxis to a certain beta-lactam, needs another one, needs penicillin for syphilis. We test them, they're negative, and then we just administer. Uh, so a lot of desensitizations are done for history of anaphylaxis without ever verifying that they're acutely hypersensitive, which is a very expensive way to do something that could be answered very quickly. Fabulous. Thank you for adding on to that. Like clarify that those are antibiotic desensitizations because we do about a thousand desensitizations a year uh, for non-antibiotics. We probably do about ten to twenty a year for antibiotics, um, largely cystic fibrosis patients with um, multiple IgE-mediated reactions, many different things. But I agree, and also just to note that there is great predictive value for parenteral or the IV cephalosporins with skin testing. So it can be useful. And actually our drug allergy practice parameters would say that your approach with that Toltaz was, was great. Oh, good. Okay. Well, that makes me feel better. <laughs> All right. Um, and, and again, I think uh, it's important to understand a lot of this is in fact, uh, interprofessional approach, right? We need different disciplines and hopefully we've highlighted that here today. It's, it's, uh, ID medicine, we need ID pharmacy. We, uh, let's be honest, we often need like case management to make sure that we're getting accurate histories from uh, the patients and understanding, oh yeah, they did get a prescription filled and they have med access and then we need allergists and everyone kind of at the table. All right, everybody. I think we've reached the end of this particular episode. I want to thank you all for joining me today. And thank you, our loyal audience, for listening to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists podcast. I've been your host, Julianne Justo, and our featured speakers today have been Drs. Kimberly Blumenthal, Megan Jeffries, and Eric Macy. Breakpoints was created by Aaron McCreary, Jason Pogue, and myself. This episode was produced by Rachel Britt and Jillian Hayes. It was edited by Travis Jones and peer-reviewed by Carrie McCracken and Corey Medler. Our production team includes Anna Zhao and Veronica Zafonte. The executive producer of Breakpoints is Aaron McCreary. Our theme song was recorded by SIDP member Steve Smoke. You can subscribe to Breakpoints on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Thanks for listening and helping SIDP achieve our vision of safe and effective antimicrobials for now and the future. 